Good morning. We've been led in a fine way in our worship this morning. You think about the things that have already been said and the things we've already heard. You appreciate the way that Bob Ravy has led us in the Lord's Supper and directed our minds back to Calvary, the opening prayer, the scripture reading. Appreciate Jeremy and not only leading us in singing, but as you'll see as we go through the lesson, he thoughtfully thought about how the sermon could pair with the songs and directed our minds toward the text that we'll be looking at momentarily and also Todd's well-worded prayer. When he said, pray for those that are cold, I knew he was thinking about people like me. And so I'm glad that we've been led in worship in a fine way this morning, and we're glad you're here. Amanda grew up in the church. She's known scripture her whole life, has always had strong confidence in God and who God is. A few weeks ago or months ago, her aunt was diagnosed with an illness And after five months of battling such, she passed away. Now, she grew up in the church, and she knows the passages about praying without ceasing, and she knows the verses that talk about our confidence in God and has even seen others prayed for and healed. But after her prayers were not answered, and after things didn't go her way, she's struggling with some things. Her question is, does God really hear? And if he hears, why didn't God help? I don't know if I can put my faith or confidence in a God like that. Is this Christianity stuff really for real? There's Byron. He didn't grow up in the church. He was converted in college. Byron's a logical mind. Christianity just appealed to him. When he heard the gospel for the first time, Byron knew that he was hearing something different. He latched on for dear life. After his conversion, he threw himself fully into his faith. He was serving communion, leading prayers in no time, teaching the middle school Bible class and assisting in last to leaders. But as of late, Byron has begun to grow weary and well-doing. He can't really put it into words, but what he would say is, I don't really know that my work is making a difference. He's decided he'll keep working because he's terrified if he stops that he might actually lose his salvation and go to hell. So rather than cease, he'll still serve. But in the end, he feels like his work may just be in vain. There's Alexis. She was so happy when she became a Christian. Oh, she was so excited to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. She obeyed the gospel and immediately, like most new converts, she started telling everybody about her faith. All of her friends, all of her loved ones immediately became prospects. And then it started to happen to her. All the no's to her invitations, all of the people telling her she was so silly for actually believing that Christianity could be true. And then there was her new nickname from her friends that she heard them calling her sister holier than thou. And she started to think to herself, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. Perhaps I really didn't believe what I said I believed when I became a Christian. Maybe my emotions were just manipulated in the moment. She believes Christianity is really worthwhile if it's true. But right now for her, that's a big if. There's Joseph. Joseph will consider himself a faithful Christian. Every time the doors are open, he was here. But recently there's been some changes. Joseph isn't always in the assembly anymore. He says right now in his life he feels closer to God, out on the lake or in a deer stand or even with his phone, watching an in-depth YouTuber lecture from a real intellectual. And he's just saying to himself, I think worship's important and being present, but I'm not sure it's as important as has been emphasized to me throughout my whole life. Maybe we can be close to God in other ways, too. And the church, though important, is not really invaluable. And the last person is Lisa. She's brilliant. She got a great education, grad and undergrad. She's a chemical engineer. She's a member of a congregation. She considers herself a deep thinker, a logical person, highly intelligent. It's a blessing, but it's also a curse 
Because as far as Lisa's concerned, there's never been a sermon or a Bible class that can really reach her spiritual altitude. In the end, she sometimes views herself as surrounded by other mere simpletons who are still struggling in spiritual immaturity with the ABCs she learned a long time ago. As she sits in worship in Bible classes, all of the cross references seem stale and the cliches from her preachers and teachers. She believes she can finish those things before they ever come out of her mouth. She's a member of the church, a sister in Christ, but she spends most of her time judging the spiritual intellectualism or lack thereof of her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. She's still a Christian, but if you were to ask her, she hadn't been on fire for Jesus in a really long time. All five of these people appear to have different circumstances, but it's really the same thing. Their hope is fragile and it's cracking. They're struggling to try to decide, is Christianity really worth living for? What if God doesn't come through when I think he should come through after he said he'd come through? Do I really have to work for God with all of my might? Can I be close to God in other ways? Is Christianity the real and most robust way to think about true life? Are there deeper and more intellectual thoughts that can be found in other places? And in every congregation, you have those five people or a mixture thereof. And there's always been the case. When you open up your Bible to the book of Hebrews and go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews, what you find is a letter that reads like a sermon. Hebrews is 13 chapters. And on the rich and deep theological side, it is chock full of spiritual depth. Old Testament references, types, shadows. Jesus is better than all things Old Testament, high and exalted above every priest, every sacrifice and every covenant therein. But then on the practical side, the heart of the book of Hebrews is hope. The Hebrew writer uses that word hope, elpis, some five times throughout the epistle as he's writing to people who either have drifted or are very close, straddling the fence close enough that they're about to be considered apostate is that they've just completely walked away from the Lord. And so he writes or he preaches to say to them, whatever you do, don't let go of your hope. Every human heart can handle hardship, but no human heart can handle hopelessness. If you lose your hope, you're through. And so the Hebrew writer writes this book to say, whatever else happens, you stay close to Christ Jesus. The passage that was read for us in Hebrews chapter six and verse 19, it says we have hope as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And it allows us to enter into the inner place behind the veil. And the book of Hebrews, in part, is saying whatever you do, don't let go of your hope. Hope can anchor our souls. But biblical hope is conditional. Only if we do certain things will hope actually have the impact in our lives that we should. In the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. In the New Testament, hope is confident expectation that God will do what he said. If you dig your teeth down into biblical hope, you'll see that it's seasoned with certainty. People in the Bible, when they say I hope, they don't just mean perhaps better safe than sorry. They mean we know. And the Hebrew writer says it'll change your life if you get hold of biblical hope. But only if you meet certain conditions. This morning, briefly, let's notice five of the prerequisites that must be met for hope to be the anchor of our soul. Without it, we'll be adrift at sea. But with it, nothing in this world can shake us and nothing in this world can move us. Hope can be the anchor of our soul. Number one, Hebrews chapter three. Hope is the anchor of our soul. If we hold our original confidence, go ahead and look at Hebrews three and verses one through three. He says Christ is greater than Moses. 
and that Christ is the one who's built everything. Hebrews 3 and verse 4, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And then in verse 6, and Christ is not just the servant in God's house like Moses, but he's a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast? He says our confidence and our hope firm unto the end. This word hold fast, it means to hold convictions and beliefs about things you profess. It's 2 Timothy 1.13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The Hebrew writer says, you and I are part of God's house. We're blessed by him if we hold fast to our hope and our confidence and our boasting in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 10.22. You'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end or he that holds fast will be saved. He's more explicit. Look down in Hebrews 3, 14 and 15. He says in verse 13, encourage or exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14. And we have come to be sharers or partakers in Christ. If we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, as it has been said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. Notice what he says in verse 14. Hold fast your original confidence. This isn't just any confidence. He's talking about the original confidence that you and I possessed on the day we were baptized when we obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, do you remember that day? Notice verse 14. He doesn't say hold fast to the original excitement that you had because that'll wax and wane. But the original confidence, the trust in the one into whose name you were being baptized must never. And so he says, you hold fast to that. You remember Acts 2 and verse 37, men and brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You remember when you did that? First Peter 3, 21, baptism also now saves us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. He says, you look back at that day and you remember it and you hold fast to that confidence. As Christians, we're supposed to grow in our faith. Second Peter 3, 18. That means the more we walk with Jesus, the more confident we become in trusting him. But we are never to grow from our faith. The longer we're in Christ, we shouldn't look back at the early days of our Christianity as a sort of immature, childlike faith from which we need to graduate from. No, we're to dig our heels deeper into those things we originally believed. And the Hebrew writer underscores, circle it, your original confidence. Get back to where you started. You probably can't see it because it's dark, but this is from the commercial this year that was called A Holiday to Remember. You remember Chevy's commercial? They first aired it during the Thanksgiving football game on Fox. It's been called the commercial or TV ad of the decade. It starts with a woman that evidently has Alzheimer's and Chevy says that's a part of who they were trying to reach out to. Families that have individuals suffering from that disease in this life. And the granddaughter apparently in this commercial, in this ad, takes her grandmother who can't remember anything or most times anyone in a 1972 Chevy Suburban. They're listening to John Denver's Sunshine on My Shoulder. And as she drives to and through different places, the memories start to come back. The first time she took her granddaughter to a movie, the first time her then husband kissed her, all of those places start to come back and flood the mind. People fell in love with the commercial and for good reason, not just because of the sentimental realities behind the commercial, but because of our seemingly incurable ability to remember where we're from and how we got to where we are. We need to be reminded. So the Hebrew writer says, you remember the day you got baptized? It's like parents. The first day of school, they take pictures of their children so they don't forget. The Hebrew writer says, you remember when you were baptized? I hope your heart took pictures of your first day in Christ and hold on to those photos for dear life. Colossians 1 and verse 4, Paul says, since the day we heard of your faith in Christ 
and we knew of the grace that you believed in truth, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, which was preached before to you in the word of the gospel, which has come to you as it has in all the world. And it brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God and truth. Go back. You want to hold your hope? You want hope to be an anchor for the soul? Get back to your original confidence. Remember when it was so simple for you? I mean, before it got complex and difficult. Remember when you just believed him because it was him and whatever he said, you would do it. Remember when you were just worried about pleasing him and nobody else. Galatians one and verse 10, because he was and is your Lord. He says, get back there. Don't you remember when you didn't care how fast anybody else was running the Christian race? You were just trying to do your level best. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 12. You weren't competing with them. You were trying to do what you could do for Jesus. He says that original confidence, whatever you got to do to get back there, you get back there and you hold fast to that confidence. You know, some people view their Christian life this way. The longer they're in Christ, the more complex their faith becomes and the more unsure about everything they become. That means that they're deep and spiritual and thoughtful. That's not how this is designed to work. According to the New Testament, the longer we walk with him, the more sure we're to become of him. And we're to dig deeper into the things we've already and always believed. Our confidence doesn't change. It deepens. Look at Hebrews three and verse 15. He says, if you don't do this, you'll be like Old Testament Israel. He says, don't harden your heart as they did in the day of rebellion. He says, I don't want you to do that. If we do, verse 17 will be true of us. God's wrath will be provoked against us. In verse 18, we will not enter his rest. In verse 19, we'll never see his presence because of our faithlessness, which ultimately leads to our disobedience. And the word of faith, which we hear, won't produce faith in us, just like it didn't produce faith in them. Hebrews 4, 2 and 3. The Hebrew writer says if hope would be the anchor of our soul, we need our original confidence and we need to hold firmly to it. You know, sometimes in the book of Acts, Luke tells us not just that people obeyed the gospel, but some of what was going on in their hearts when they obeyed the gospel. So Acts 241, individuals gladly received the word. Or the Ethiopian nobleman, Acts 8.39, he went on his way rejoicing. Or everybody in the Philippian jailer's house, Acts 16 and verse 34, they all rejoiced together. All of that, no doubt, was tied and tethered to their newfound faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you go back to your original confidence, your original trust, and you hold firm to it so that it can change and ultimately fuel and motivate you. Number two, hope can be the anchor of our soul if we work hard and follow the faithful. In Hebrews chapter 6, go ahead and turn your Bible there. In verses 4 through 6, we've got one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament about apostasy and about the impossibility to restore people once they fall away. But if you drop down to Hebrews 6 and verse 9, the Hebrew writer doesn't think this is going to be true of his audience. He says, but beloved, we're persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this way. God is not unrighteous to forget your faith and work of labor, which you've shown toward his name, toward the same in which you do minister. And then in verse 11, I want you to show the same eagerness or earnestness of steadfast hope unto the end. You see what he's saying? I believe you all will remain faithful and hold fast. I want you to remember that when you work for God, everything you do is contributing or seen as being directly done for him. Look at verse 10. God sees the work of faith which you minister toward his name. When we serve other people in the name of Jesus, God views it as if we're directly serving him. If you want faith to be the anchor of your soul and I want it to be the anchor of my soul, the Hebrew writer says you work diligently for God. That's verse 10. 
In verse 11, he says, show the same earnestness faithfully to the end. Going back to what he mentioned earlier, keep working at the same speed you started at and don't grow weary in well-doing. You keep serving. You keep being faithful and you don't grow weary in well-doing because God is going to reward you. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 42? Whosoever gives one of these a cup of cold water because he's my disciple, I tell you, he'll in no wise lose his reward. Or Philippians 4 and verse 18, Paul says, when you sent the collection to me, you offered it up as a sweet aroma to God. Collection is given to the church for the work of the church. But from heaven's point of view, it's ultimately what we give to God and for his cause. He says, whatever you do, you keep working. Show the same earnestness all the way until the very end. Whatever you do, he says, don't give up. You keep working. You ever been in a situation at your house or maybe on the job where you feel like, you know what, I'm doing all the work around here and I'm going to show these people. I mean, you don't all out quit, but you say, I'm going to slow down so much so that it'll be noticeable. I'm going to slow down and people will see that I'm really pulling all the weight and you slow down just enough so somebody can ask you, hey, what's changed or what happened so that you can give them a piece of your mind about how everybody else around you is lazy? The Hebrew writer says, hey, you work for God. No slowing up allowed. Don't quit. You work for him and you know the reward you're going to get in the end. Second Timothy four and verse eight. He says there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me in that day. And not to me only, but all those who love his appearing. Keep working. Malcolm Gladwell said hard work is only a prison if you don't have any clue what you're working for. But if you know your work will know no bounds. You see, he says, I want you to go out and work. Imagine two individuals, Mr. A and Mr. B. They both work in a factory. They work at the same company. They wear the same uniform. They work in the same conditions. It's factory work. It's assembly line work. They work 12 hour shifts, five days a week. They do the same thing. They screw part A on the part B. Mr. A and Mr. B, they both work in this factory. They do the same work and they come back again and do the same work over and over again, except Mr. A has been told when he was hired, your salary will be $10,000 a year. Mr. B has been told, hey, your salary will be $10 million a year. And one day they're in the break room talking and Mr. A says, you know what? I hate this job. It's just the most boring and tedious thing. If I could find another job, I'd leave this one in a heartbeat. But this is the best I can do for right now. I can't wait until the weekend when I can really go out and have some fun. This is a terrible place to work. And Mr. B says, well, not really. I mean, it's actually not that bad. It's a pretty good gig. What's the difference? Their expectation. Same job, same conditions, same uniform, same everything, except what they expect to get in the end. Don't you see what the Hebrew writer is saying? You and I can work steadfastly for the Lord because we know what we're going to receive in the end. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. First Corinthians 15 and verse 58. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if this was all there was, we would be of all men most miserable. But now is Christ raised from the dead. First Corinthians 15, 19 and 20. And that changes everything. We are Mr. B. We know that our labor is not in vain. We're in the same conditions as everybody else in the world. We're doing the same task for the most part. But our expectation is different. And that keeps our hope as a steadfast anchor to steady the soul in an ever changing world. He says, remember what you fled from. Remember how it started for you and remember where it's going to end up. So many times we think about our baptism and we're so concerned with how much we knew. The Hebrew writer says, forget that. Think about who you knew and why you did what you did and why you're doing it now, because that's what's going to keep you faithful in the long run. Look at Hebrews six and verse 12. He says, don't be sluggish. Don't be slothful. 
But imitators or mimic those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, I want you to work hard and then find good examples to latch on to. You know, in Hebrews 11, he's going to expand this and talk about all of the Old Testament faithful characters who have come and gone. But he introduces the idea here and he says, I want you to find good examples. Find people that are serving and following Jesus Christ. And I want you to model your life after theirs. If we want hope to be the anchor of our soul, we've got to work hard and follow the faithful. Serve him not because of hell, but because of hope. It makes a difference. Serve him not because you're fearful of what will happen if you don't, but what will happen if you do bring so much excitement that you suffer from a kind of spiritual FOMO where you don't want to miss out on the great things that God is doing and is going to allow you and me to be a part of. And so you just have to serve him. What does he tell the apostles in Matthew 19 and verse 28? In the new world, the regeneration of the son of man, the son of man will sit on his throne and judge the world. But you, too, will sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Every person who's left houses or fathers or mothers or children or land for my sake will receive a hundredfold. And in the world to come, everlasting life. Those that are first will be last. The last will be first. Get to work because it's worth it. Hope will anchor our souls if we work hard and follow the faithful. If we remember we're working for God and with God and allow that to encourage us to do what he would have us to do. Here's number three. Hope is the anchor of our soul if we trust God's character. In Hebrews 6 and verse 18, this is really the section where this whole sermon comes from. The anchor of our soul. It comes from this section. Hebrews 6 and verse 18, after he's described Abraham's faith in verses 13 through 17. In verse 18, he says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hope on the hope which is set before us. He says, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. And it enters into the inner place of the veil where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone on our behalf. He's a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says you can have hope as the anchor of the soul if you trust God's character and you know who God is. Whenever you feel like hope is slipping out of your hands or slipping out of your heart, ask yourself two questions. Number one, do I believe in God? Number two, what kind of God do I believe in? Look at verse 18 by two immutable things. That means by two unchanging things. He's saying God doesn't change. Malachi three and verse six says, I'm the Lord, your God, O sons of Israel. Therefore, I do not change. Hebrews 13 and verse eight. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. He's always the same. And based on that, we can hope because God always keeps his word. And that's the God we're serving. If you go back up in Hebrews chapter six and notice verse 14, these are the two unchanging things. The promise made to Abraham and the oath that he made. The oath he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17 is I'm going to bless you and your descendants. They'll be as numerable as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashores, and your descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. You can trust me with all of your heart. God saying, I never lie. I never let people down. Maybe you've seen this machine before. You know what this is. Harvard Medical Review wrote an article about it in 2019. It's an ancient, maybe one of the first polygraph machines used in this company. We call a polygraph machine the what? The lie detector test. Harvard says, well, originally polygraph tests weren't really for trying to figure out whether somebody was telling the truth. It was a medical examination. It can't read your mind anyway to tell if you're lying. The purpose of the polygraph test is to notice bodily functions, which normally change when a person's being dishonest. They'll sweat more. He says their heart will beat faster. Different things will happen as far as their eyes and the way they ultimately behave. Those things will change. And then you might have an indication that somebody's deceiving you. 
The Hebrew writer says you'll never have to give your God a polygraph test because he always tells the truth. He doesn't just say God can't lie. He says God doesn't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. So we can have strong consolation who fled to God for refuge. Titus one in verse two says God's promised us eternal life and he can't lie. First Samuel 15 and verse 29 says God is the strength of Israel. He will not lie, nor will he repent. Over and over again, the Bible tells us we can put our trust in God, and that is the strong refuge that will stabilize our souls. When our lives are struggling, when we're struggling with hope, trusting in God to do the things that he said he will do, we need to memorize from this passage right here four affirmations for life and repeat them to ourselves in times when our hope's evading us. Number one, my God does not change. That's Hebrews 6.18. Number two, my God is not a liar. Hebrews 6 and verse 18. Number three, my Jesus has gone out ahead of me, Hebrews 6 and verse 20, and therefore, number four, my life is in great shape. Number one, my God does not change. Number two, my God's not a liar. Number three, my Jesus has gone out ahead of me, and therefore, number four, my life is in great shape, no matter what. According to these verses, the person does not exist who's thrown their all into Christianity and then been disappointed by God because God didn't come through. He doesn't do that. He can't do that. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to trust him. And the Hebrew writer says you can because he always keeps his word. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And it's on this point we just need to be careful, extremely careful. Because one of the quickest ways to become frustrated with God is to want things from God and to desire things from God that he never promised to give. Hold God to the things that he promised in the text and he will never be found to be a liar. But beware of creating God in our own image and saying things about God that aren't true, because then we'll lose the anchor of our soul, which is hope. We'll surrender our hope. Never say things like, well, I'm a Christian. I thought this meant I would be happier all the time or healthier or my dreams would come true or I would be well liked or popular. Or that when I prayed for things, I would always get them. There are some things that are sometimes byproducts of becoming a Christian, but they're not the basis of becoming a Christian. And there is a difference. People get frustrated with God all the time and say, I can't put my hope in Christianity. God let me down. God failed me. Hold him to the truths of the text that he promised and he can never be found to be a liar. You see, I think our problem with this, I've got the same problem you have. You're busy and I'm busy and we spend most of our time taking quick glances at God. We see him and we keep going. But the Hebrew writer is asking us to slow down and really to behold him and see the God we're dealing with. Isaiah 40 and verse nine says, behold your God. That means the same God people dealt with in the Old Testament is the same God we're dealing with. And we need to slow down and behold him. It will give our souls hope. It'll be an anchor for the soul. That same words used in Acts 27, 29 and 30. It will steady them so that they won't move. We've got to behold him. The best way I can describe this is this whole idea of beholding versus glancing. Anybody in here, grandparents, show of hands, shake or nod? Yeah. If you're a grandparent, even if you're not, if you've ever seen grandparents look at their grandchildren, that's beholding. When they look at them, they're not just glancing. They're infatuated with everything the child does. If you're out to eat, you will know if that's their grandchild. They're obsessed with them. They see everything they do, every facet of their body. They're amazed. They're infatuated. They're enthralled. And the Hebrew writer is saying, When you and I start to view God like that, we'll see life through him and it'll change our everything. 
We won't be hearing a sermon like this one and trying to have hope for hope's sake, trying to keep it together. We'll be merely trying to contain our excitement as we brace ourselves for everything that God's about to do. Like a young girl that goes to sleep the day before Christmas, she doesn't know what's under the tree, but she can hardly contain the excitement because she knows in the morning when she wakes up, those that love her most would not have disappointed her. And whatever is under the tree, whatever it is, it'll be good. It'll be better than good. It'll be great because she can put her confidence in the people that love her most. And when we view God that way, hope will be the anchor for our soul. The Hebrew writer says Jesus is the forerunner that's gone on ahead of us. And our hearts won't be moved if we keep our confidence in him. Here's number four. Draw near to God. The Hebrew writer says Jesus's covenant is better. He's a high priest with better promises. Hebrews eight and verse six. The covenant of Jesus Christ makes the old covenant obsolete in relation to saving us. Hebrews eight and verse 13. And then in Hebrews chapter seven, he says Jesus's new covenant did what the old law could never do. He says in Hebrews seven nineteen, the law made nothing perfect, but the introduction of a better hope did through which we draw near to God. If we want hope to be the anchor of our souls, we've got to draw near to God. We've got to come close to God. As you read the Old Testament, it doesn't matter who it was, Moses or Abraham or Ruth or Samuel. According to the new covenant, they've never been any closer to God than you and I are. This whole idea about, hey, you draw near to God. It doesn't mean nobody in the Old Testament could be close to God. It just means they couldn't be any closer than us. God in various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he speaks through his dear son. It doesn't matter how many visions they had, how much audible conversation they had in the old covenant. You and I can be close to God, closer than they ever were. And in that, we can have a confident expectation of what's to come. But we've got to draw near to God. And somebody's hearing this and they're saying, Hiram, I hear what you're saying, but I don't feel close to God. I mean, I'm doing all the things and I don't feel close to God. I can assure you it's not God's fault. Psalm 145 and verse 18 says God is near to all who call on him, to those who call on him in truth. That means you and I can be as close to God as we want to be. And if we get close to him, hope will anchor our souls. But we have to draw near. That's our responsibility. Get close, scoot in and do what you can. You know, we're close to him when we do what we just did a moment ago, when we partake of the supper. Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 29, whether we believe him or not is up to us. But Jesus says, I'll be right there with you when you do it in the kingdom. Matthew 26, 29. When we sing these psalms of praise, Hebrews 2 and verse 12 says Jesus is singing right alongside us. When we get baptized into Jesus Christ, we're clothed in Christ. God becomes our father and the spirit indwells us. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Galatians 4, 6 and 7. God says, I want to be close. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. James 4 and verse 8. And then we can have hope. Do you want to be close to God? Who wants to be close to God? Who would say I want to draw near to him? Answer that for yourself and then ask yourself the real questions. Do I really want to be close to God? You know, sometimes when people say that, what they mean is I want good vibes and I want to have a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about my spirituality. I mean, do you really want to be close to him? And if you do, are you doing close to God stuff or far away stuff? Are you doing the kind of things that would help a person draw close to God? The Hebrew writer says, if you do, you can draw near to him through the new covenant and he will draw near to you. And when he does, we'll have a hope we never had before. Here's the fifth and final thing that the Hebrew writer says is a condition for us to have a hope that can anchor our souls. And that is we need to refuse to waver. 
The book of Hebrews is a deep book, but it's also extremely practical. When you get to chapter 10 through chapter 13, he starts talking about the practical things that you and I need to do in order to be pleasing to God. And in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, he says, I want you to remember your bodies were washed in pure water at your baptism and your conscience was sprinkled clean. In verse 23, hold fast the original confidence of your hope. In verse 24, exhort and encourage other individuals that are Christians. And then in verse 25, never willfully choose to be absent from the assembly. Never forsake the assembly because in that is your hope. You want to hold fast to your hope, hope to anchor your soul. He says, for sure, keep your original confidence. Remember the day you got baptized. Know who God is and hold fast and work hard for him. Know God's character and trust in that. Be a person that draws near to God, but then you've got to refuse to waver. Don't be a wishy-washy Christian. Be somebody who's in and all the way in. Don't falter on what you said you'd do. Be faithful to God and hold firm to him. In verse 23, he says, hold fast to the confession of our faith. What is that confession? You know, the day we get baptized, we make a confession. Or sometime in the study, based on Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, everybody that's a Christian at some point audibly said the words, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You said those words out loud. Paul calls it the good confession in 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 13. But according to this passage, we've got to keep making that confession. With our lives, we keep saying to God, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And if we do that, when we stand before him, we won't be disappointed. But we've got to hold fast to our confession. Jesus told the churches in Revelation, Thyatira, Revelation 2 and verse 25, hold fast to what you have until I come. Philadelphia in Revelation 3 and verse 11, hold fast to what you have and let no man take your crown. Refuse to waver. What does that mean for Christians in 2024 at Lehman Avenue? It means keep singing. It means keep praying. It means keep coming, keep attending, keep serving because he won't let us down. We know what we're working for. Don't waver. Don't think about being faithful. Just simply let loose and be completely faithful to him. As Teresa of Avila has said, from heaven, even the worst life on earth will simply be viewed as one inconvenient night in a hotel. It will be worth it. We won't be put to shame. Throw your all into it. In Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, he gives a harsh warning of those that turn back. But then in verse 39, he says, that's not us. We're not of those that draw back and are destroyed, but we're those that believe and trust. And ultimately, we have our souls saved. Don't waver in your faith. Cling to it for dear life, for eternal life, because it's our lifeline. What people expect to get out of this life and at the end of this life says everything about what they do with the life they currently possess. And he says hope can anchor our souls. Listen, everybody in the world hopes in something. Everybody is hoping in something or in someone. And the Hebrew writer says, as Christians, our anchor is tied not to an idea, but ultimately to a person. And just like an anchor moors a ship and the ship can't move, he says our anchor is tied to Jesus Christ with our faith in him. Every human heart can handle hardship. No human heart can handle hopelessness. If you lose your hope, you're through. If your hope stalls, Your service to God will ultimately stop. And he says, I don't want you to quit. Don't give up. Remember why you started and remember where you're going. Throw your all into Christianity and hold fast to your hope. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the old hymn says, the world has nothing left to give. If you put your all into this world and don't have a hope beyond it, when this life ends, your hope will vanish and you'll be disappointed. Instead, trust in Jesus Christ who brings in a better hope that no other system or worldview can ultimately produce 
turn your life over to him and be immersed in water based on your faith in him, your desire to repent of your sins and rise to walk in newness of life and allow that hope to anchor your soul. If you've done that in the past and you feel that your hope is wavering, it's cracking like the five people we discussed at the beginning of this sermon. You and I have an anchor which keeps the soul and we'd be happy and willing to pray with you and pray on your behalf to remind you of that reality, but also to petition God to allow his kind providence, his people and events in your life to work out in such a way that you never forget that that's true every day of your life, regardless of how you feel. Jeremy's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.